Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 12. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12, as you're finding your place there in God's Word. Um, I do want to remind you of a ministry called Advice and Aid, um, Crisis Pregnancy Center here in our city that is working hard to minister to moms and to protect life. It is a difficult work, but they are making a huge impact and they need our support. We give to this ministry on a monthly basis as a part of our regular church budget, but every year we do something called a baby bottle drive, and we encourage you to take one of the baby bottles that's in a pack and play out in the four-year area, take it home, fill it up with change. You can just put a check in there, you can put cash in there, however you want to do it, and then bring that baby bottle back by May 26th. And that will just be an extraordinary way above and beyond what we normally give to show our appreciation for this wonderful ministry. I don't know if you've seen recently the legislation that was passed in the state of Alabama, I will say, my wife's home state, my boy's home state, passed some really good legislation, and Missouri just passed some really good legislation. Amen? To protect life. And... um, We praise God. I hope Kansas will be next. Amen? And so we as God's people, we can play a part in that, can't we? It's called the voting booth. I don't know if you've heard of that. It works. And so we got to do what God has called us to do. So this morning, we turn our attention to Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. Um, As I was preparing uh, for this marriage I came across this article entitled, Three Compelling Reasons to Never Get Married. And uh, it was a sad, sad article. And it concluded with this statement. It said, love is a free, happy, and vibrant bird. And if you want it to remain that way, don't make the mistake of forcing it into the cage of marriage. Boy, that broke my heart. The sad reality is much of our culture today, that's how they view marriage. They view it as a cage. Instead of viewing it as this this incredible institution that God has designed for, for his glory and for our good, they view it as a cage to restrain, to enslave. And I'm afraid that to a large extent we have no one to blame but ourselves. We can talk about the 60s and we got too smart for our own good and all the other factors, but I'm of the firm belief that to a large extent the reason that our culture around us has a poor view of marriage is because we as God's people haven't done a very good job of living out his design. Nothing wrong with his design. His design is perfect. His design is best. The problem comes when God's people are unwilling to live according to his design. And listen to me, you can't bow your neck to God and disobey his word and there not be consequences. And I can tell you today that almost every problem that ails our culture can be 
trace back to this issue. God gave us a perfect design. The question is, will we live according to it? And what Jesus does in this text is he's going to lift high God's design. In a culture where divorce was rampant, he was saying, look, this was God's intention. This is God's design, and it's perfect, and it's best, and he's training. You remember, this is training the 12 as they go out to start the church. He wants them to know this is the design, and we as God's people are called to redeem this institution that sin and Satan has marred. We're to redeem it. Did you know this today, that your marriage is intended to be evangelistic? Your marriage is missional, that people are intended to look to your marriage and see the beauty of Christ. That's what Paul says. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. That's what your marriage is intended to be. Now, before we jump into the text, one final note. We're not here to look back and inflict guilt. That is not the purpose of our time. Our time is not so you look back and think about our, our purpose is to look forward. It doesn't matter where you're at today. You may have not been married once, but five times, and the person you're currently with is not your spouse. I think I've read that somewhere in God's Word. But praise God, he's a God of grace, amen? Let me say that again. He's a God of grace. He's a God of new beginnings and fresh starts. Forgetting what lies behind straining towards what lies ahead. That's our, that's our intention this morning. And from this point moving forward, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, let's all together commit ourselves to God's design. Amen? Let's do that. All right. Let's pray together. We'll jump into this text. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that when it comes to marriage, you haven't left us to our own devices to somehow figure this out on our own. You've given us an instruction manual. You've shown us your design. I pray this morning we'd see it beautifully portrayed in your word this morning. You'd speak to all of us, no matter where we're at, if we're student, we're single, that we'd see the beauty of your design and we commit ourselves to it today, that we might be the people you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. It says there, When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? So a very straightforward question. They're asking Jesus, Under what grounds can a man divorce his wife? In Deuteronomy 24, God gave instructions concerning divorce. Um, we're not going to have time to look at those verses in depth this morning. Uh, but just know this, in those instructions, there was one word in those instructions that caused great controversy, and it was the word indecency. Moses said that you could put away your wife if you found some indecency in her. And how you viewed that word or how you interpreted that word indecency determined the grounds upon which you felt it was okay for a person to divorce his wife. And most of the culture and most of the scholars and particularly the Pharisees who were asking this question, they had adopted a very broad interpretation of that word indecency to the extent that you could virtually get divorced for any reason at all. I mean, they wrote these things down in their traditions. They said, if your wife talked too loud, you could divorce her. I'm not making this stuff up. It's just funny is what it is. Sad, really, what it is. And so in the midst of that culture, that, that divorce was just rampant. 
completely miss the intention of God's word, they come to Jesus and they want to ask him, where do you stand? They know he's got a high view of scripture. They believe they've got Moses on their side. They want to know, where do you stand on this issue? And Jesus says, well, we don't have to wonder about it. God's spoken on it. He's already told us how he feels about marriage. And so he shows them God's design. Look at Look at verse four, and he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so Jesus says, the standard by which we judge marriage is not contemporary culture, it's God's word. I want to know what God thinks. We just go back to his original design. And so Jesus is giving them God's design for marriage. What I've done is I've put together a definition for God's design for marriage. And I want to tell you before I even give it to you that it's not a a perfect definition. It's not intended to be an exhaustive definition. Just simply based on what Jesus gives us here and the quotations from Genesis, I put together this uh, definition highlighting what I, I believe Jesus sought to highlight here, and this would be my definition, that marriage is two distinct individuals, one man, one woman, who leave their father and mother to unite in an exclusive and intimate relationship for a lifetime. Let me say that again. Two distinct individuals, one man and one woman, who leave their father and mother to unite together in an exclusive and intimate relationship for a lifetime. Now let's look at that definition on the base of what Jesus says here. Two distinct individuals. Jesus quotes from Genesis 1.27 and he says, In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Now this is amazing to me because in the first mentioning of the creation of man and the institution of marriage, the one thing that the Holy Spirit of God chooses to underscore is the distinctiveness between the sexes. The distinctiveness is that, boy, I'm really goofing that word up. The distinctiveness between male and female, that marriage is intended to be one man and one woman. And let me make this plain because we can no longer take this for granted, but man and woman are different. He made male and he made female. That every person he's created has either maleness or femaleness. There's no ambiguity here, is there? They're both the same in the sense that they're made in the image of God. Both have immortal souls. Same in the spiritual realm. We know in the New Testament in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. They're all one in Christ Jesus. But physically, emotionally, psychologically, socially, in all these other areas, they are vastly different. And folks, that is part of God's design. That part of the beauty of God's design is that there's diversity and distinctiveness between these two individuals, both made in the image of God, both eternally valuable to his heart, none more important, neither more important than the other, but distinctively beautiful and different. And I believe that one of the gravest mistakes that we could ever make in the deterioration of marriage and the family is to blur these lines rather than celebrating and cultivating the differences of God's perfect creation. And I believe this is so critical 
that at the foundation of this marriage relationship is two people made in God's image, but distinctive. And then you take these two distinct individuals and they leave their parents. Don't miss this. That word leave, it's a strong word. It's literally the word forsake. Forsake. Now that sounds strong, doesn't it? And they forsake not in the sense of responsibility, but absolutely when it comes to the relationship. That there must be the severing of one relationship before there can be the establishing of another. And I've seen so much dysfunction in the marriage relationship that oftentimes can be traced back to a lack of leaving. They don't leave in terms of responsibility. We're to honor our parents. That continues on. And we're to care for our parents. But as, as God is speaking specifically to the man, he says, you leave in terms of priority. That your number one priority is now that woman that God has given to you and you lay your life down for her. You put her needs above your own and she now becomes your number one priority and your best friend. So your relationship with your parents changes in terms of priority, but not just in priority, but authority. That that man is stepping out from underneath the authority of his parents and now he is called by God to lead a new family unit in submission to Christ and his word. That is God's design. Is it disruptive? Oh, you bet it is. But intense, uh, intensely so. It's, it's purposeful. Two distinct individuals leaving their mother and their father and then uniting an exclusive and intimate relationship. It says, and to be joined to his wife, two shall become one, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. Be joined to his wife, sometimes translated cleave. It means to weld together. That the marriage union is the uniting, the welding together of two distinct individuals. And these two distinct individuals, one man and one woman, become one physically, emotionally, and relationally, filling up the empty spaces of each other's lives. And I wish we had time to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and you see how God, the beauty of his creation is absolutely amazing. He makes this creation. He says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. He makes man and woman. He says, "Ah, really good. And then he sees the man by himself and he says, That's not good. And he takes the woman from his rib, not from his head to dominate him, not from his feet to be trampled on, but from his side to be a companion with him. And in the coming together of these two individuals that are different purposefully, they come together in a complementary way to complete each other. Folks, is God's design glorious? absolutely amazing and the benefits in this union in this exclusive one man and one woman in this exclusive and intimate relationship the benefits of sex and procreation are set within that relationship only God says this is the parameters here really good out there no Why does God do this? Is this because God's some cosmic killjoy? He's seeking to make your life miserable and keep good things from you? No. It's because he knows that when you take sex out of this relationship, it will never satisfy. Because he didn't design it that way. But within this relationship, oh, wonderful. 
So two distinct individuals leaving father and mother, uniting in this exclusive intimate relationship for how long? For a lifetime. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. What God has joined together. I love this because if you read it this way, it shows us that God is the one who takes the initiative in putting these two individuals together. That a man and a woman may decide, well, we're going to get married and the state may legalize that union. But God says, ultimately, I'm responsible for uniting you two together in this covenantal relationship. And what God is saying is he's saying, if I divinely established this relationship, then it simply does not lie within the rights of man to destroy what I joined together. God brings them together. Two individuals for a lifetime. Marriage is not a contract. It's a lifetime covenant and a lifetime commitment. And I believe that oftentimes if we would start with this basic understanding, if we would begin with this basic proposition that there's no way out, there's no slipping out the back door, if that were the case, then we would be forced to work through our problems rather than walking away from them. But listen to me, if you're looking for an escape, you'll find the opportunity you want. But it's why when we come to that marriage ceremony, we don't talk about feelings there. That marriage ceremony, it's not about feelings. That's for later. Because the basis and the foundation of that covenantal commitment, it is not feelings. It's promises. That all the questions are volitional. And the responses are, I will and I do in hardship as in blessing. Sick or poor, richness and in health, whatever it is, whatever the circumstances come, until death alone shall part you. A lifetime commitment. That's God's design. Jesus says that, that was the original design. That's what God wants. And then they have the question, well, then why, these, why the contract? What, the, why, what, what about these certificate deals that Moses talked about? So look at verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it's not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Boy, Jesus, he's lifting high the sacredness of this covenant commitment. He says, the only reason that Moses permitted it is because he, God knew the hardness of your heart. He knew what you as sinful man would have a tendency to do. You'd have a tendency to take a woman, use her and abuse her, and then throw her to the curb. And God says, that's not the way it's going to be among my people. That's not how we're going to act. And if you go back and you read Deuteronomy 24, you'll realize that those verses on divorce are not a permission to divorce. They're a protection for women. And they're, means, they're used as a means of warning God's people about the severe dangers of divorce. And what these people had done is they'd taken God's instruction, they twisted them, and they'd misinterpreted them to fulfill their own sinful lusts and desires. And do people still do that today? And twist the word of God to make it mean whatever they want, to give them permission to do whatever they want to do? But Jesus says that was not God's original intention. You guys have missed the mark. You've missed the heart of God. You want to know God's heart towards divorce? Malachi chapter 2, God says, I hate divorce. Because God knows what it does to individuals. Listen, in my short time of ministry, these past 15 years, you know what I say? I hate divorce. I've seen enough of it as a sinful man to see the impact it has. It's like a bomb that goes off, and I've seen the impact, and I hate it. If I, a sinful man, feel that way, how much more does God? 
That's his heart towards this. And what Jesus does in verse 9 is he reminds them of the serious nature of the marriage covenant. And he affirms again that divorce is only to be accommodated under severe circumstances. That in a culture of liberality where you could divorce so long as you had the paperwork. Jesus says, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be with my people. And the overriding principle of verse 9 is that for the believer, divorce is never simply a choice you make. It's something that you're forced to do because of the immoral actions of your spouse, meaning abandonment or, 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 or adultery or repeated adultery or criminal activity or physical abuse, whatever the case may be. But, but you're forced out. The, 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 the idea here is that you can't, you don't have the option to just wake up one day and say, you know what, I just don't feel like loving them anymore. No, he says that there's no grounds there. And I'm going to tell you these other extreme cases are normally the exception, not the norm. What, what normally I hear, and I see this, is somebody comes and says, well, I just I don't love them anymore. I've changed, they change. Listen, we all change. I think I married the wrong person. You know what I tell them? If they got your ring on their finger, they're the right one for you. And more often than not, I had this told me by a mentor and I learned it to be true in almost every circumstance. When it come, somebody comes to me and says, my feelings have changed, it's often because they've already found somebody else they want. And they're saying, I just want out of this deal so I can go over there. And folks, that's called wife swapping. That's called husband swapping. It's not God's design. And just so we understand the serious nature of this situation, Jesus makes clear that to divorce a person simply because your feelings have changed when you have no biblical grounds, then to remarry is adultery. Boy, that's serious. Now, I want to remind us again, I'm not here to inflict guilt. We're not here to look past. But so that all of us, right where we're at today, can we see the serious nature of this? And Christ is calling us back to his design. And it's apparent that the serious nature of this, the disciples get it, because what's the response of the disciples in verse 10? They say, if the relationship of the man to the, with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. The disciples say, wow, you're putting the bar so far up there, I might as well not even get married. And Jesus says, amen. And then he tells them in verse 11, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it's been given for their are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. I mean, there's some born with physical abnormalities, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. These kings would often have harems, and they would, the men that would guard those, we see it in the book of Esther, it's brutal, it was immoral. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. So in that last one there, who made themselves eunuchs, I don't think it's talking about self-mutilation. I think it's talking about those who commit themselves to singleness for the purpose of the kingdom, for the sake of the kingdom. Paul did this. He was celibate. And Paul said, if you can be this way, great. That's awesome. I'll also tell you, in 15 years of ministry, I've seen very few people who are actually called to a life of singleness. And if you're not called to it, don't attempt it. But the whole point of all of this text is Jesus lifting high the sacredness of this institution that God created for our good and for his glory. And he's teaching the disciples that we as God's people moving forward, we're to redeem this institution that God created and he gave to us for our blessing. 
that God, do you know this today? So many people today, they're just trying to survive marriage. You're just trying to make it through another day. Can I tell you, that's not God's design for your marriage. You're not called to survive, but to thrive. Paul, describing the marriage relationship, says this, marriage, this, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church that according to God's sovereignty, he has ordained this institution of marriage as a means of displaying the love relationship that exists between Christ and his church. In other words, can I just ask you this question? Is your marriage making the way of Christ appealing? Do the people in your workplace, do the people in your neighborhood, do the people you're around, do they say, boy, I'd love to have a marriage like that. That there's so much love and respect that people are saying, I don't know about that whole Christianity stuff, but I sure would like to have that marriage. Is that your marriage? Are you having fun? Fun in, this was in design. Listen to me, I know marriage was designed for our sanctification. You put these two distinct individuals together, there's going to be friction. And God uses it to round off the rough edges of our life. But it's also given for our enjoyment. There ought to be joy. I see some married couples, well, we're going we're gonna to stick together to the end. It might be miserable, but we're going to get there. Listen, how in the world does that ever honor the Lord? Now, I was reminded this week of an old country song, the great theologian Paul Overstreet. Who knew? But he said this song. I, I, he says, the guys that I work with, they work real hard, and they like to have a good time. At the end of the day, they like to play, and they like to go and unwind. And they laugh and they joke and they poke fun at me because I don't stay long. And they can't understand why a married man would ever be in a hurry to go home. And I just tell them that all the fun that a man could want, I got waiting for me at home. And she likes to dance and she loves romance. And she throws a great pa-a-te. Now there's never any dull minutes around here. Something always going on. I got all the fun that a man could want waiting for me at home. Men, can I get an amen to that? Amen. God has given us this institution for, for his glory, but also for our enjoyment to display the beauty of Christ to the world. And if you're not having fun today, let me tell you something. You need to make sure you're putting Christ first. Good homework assignment this week. Go read Ephesians 5. That gives you your responsibilities. Men, you don't worry about what the wife's supposed to be doing. You just read your verses. You get a lot more than her because you've got a lot more to do. And wives, you go home and read and listen to me. But you look at that. Every bit of it's countercultural. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. You're going to have to make a decision today, every one of you. If you're a young married couple, you better decide today, am I going to go the world's way or am I going to go God's way? Because God says in Psalm 127.1, you can do it however you want to do it, just don't expect me to bless it. You cannot disobey God's word and there not be consequences. 
But if you follow God's word and you say, I'm going to let God build this house according to his design, then you can know you have his blessing. And then he enables you by the power of his Holy Spirit to live out this relationship. The marriage relationship is supernatural. It's not natural. (laughs) If you try to live this thing out in the flesh, you are destined for trouble. But by the power of the Spirit, he gives you the ability to live as he called you to live. Then secondly, you better learn to forgive. If there's no joy in your relationship, then my second question is, have you allowed a root of bitterness to grow in your heart? I do not believe that it's coincidental that the passage that immediately precedes this verse is what? Forgiveness. Number one marriage killer is unforgiveness. And marriage is that primary relationship in which we get to apply the forgiveness that God has extended to us. That's where we get to say, we've received forgiveness, we've received grace. Now we get to demonstrate grace to the spouse that God has given to us. It's beautiful. And there can be no reconciliation and restoration. If there's forgiveness that needs to occur, at some point, somebody has to take the hit. Somebody's got to take the initiative. Somebody's got to step up. We all know it. There's tension in the relationship. We've all been there. Anybody tells you they never have any struggles, listen, they're lying to you. We've all been there. There's struggle, there's strife. We're ticked off, they're ticked off. The only way there can be restoration and reconciliation is somebody's got to humble themselves. Somebody's got to take the initiative and step up. And if you've been through the Love and Respect series, you know who's the one that's supposed to take the initiative? The mature one. (laughs) I'll tell you this. Men, you ought to be the one to step up. You say, well, I haven't done any wrong, anything wrong. Well, listen, that's just pride and selfishness. I've learned enough to know in every situation there's enough blame to go around. Why not you take the hit? Even if you think you've done nothing wrong, to step up and say, I'm sorry, I apologize. And you know the greatest example of this? You and I had enmity with God. There was a disruption in our relationship with God because we had sinned. But in order for there to be restoration, somebody had to humble themselves. And who humbled themselves? Christ. Did he do anything wrong? No, he's perfect and sinless. But out of a desire to see a relationship restored, he took the hit and said, I'll take it so that they can have restoration. And men, we're called to love our wives like Christ loved the church. And if Christ can humble himself when he had done nothing wrong, I think you can humble yourself and say, I'll take the hit because it's not worth it to have tension in the home. I'd rather have a glorious relationship that knows joy and demonstrates the beauty of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. This is the beauty of God's design. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you, we thank you so much for your grace. God, I don't know, I, I, I pray, I know there's a lot of people, probably every one of us have been affected by this issue in some way, shape, or form, and I pray, Lord, that you would remind us today, no matter where we're at, that you are a God of grace. That no matter where we've been, no matter what has occurred, today is a new day and an opportunity to say yes to you and yes to your design. And so, God, I pray that wherever a person's at today, they would commit themselves to you primarily. If they're trying to live out marriage apart from faith in Jesus, I pray that you would show them that that's impossible because they're a sinner. And I pray that they would make you the foundation of their home. I praise you for a couple that came up after the first service and said we were trying to do marriage in our own power. 
and we realized that we needed Jesus, and both of them committed their life to Christ. There could be somebody here this morning who needs to trust in Jesus. God, I pray that you draw them to yourself. God, the, for those of us that do know you, no, no matter where we're at today, God, help us to commit to your design. We're not perfect. We're going to stumble. We're going to fall. But God, I pray that every day we get up by the power of your spirit, committing ourselves to living out your design, knowing that it's best and it's good and it's perfect. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.